Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 10. The biblical version of it is in Jeremiah. There are lots of biblical versions of it in Jeremiah. When he says, you long ago broke your yoke, burst your bonds, and said, I will not serve. And yet on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you have lain down like a harlot. That is to say, you've, you said, I'm not going ha- to have the wool pulled over my eyes anymore. You see? I'm going to think for myself. I'm not going to have somebody tell me, you know, some m- magisterial source tell me what's true and what's not. I'm going to go out and find out for myself. This is Flannery. I say this is a southern accent because it's Flannery O'Connor's main theme, really. Uh, and then Jeremiah said, and now you have gone to every high hill. And high hills is where the sacrificial shrines of the, of the, the idolatrous pagan shrines were, where they often, often offered human sacrifice. Okay, so I offer those as echoes or anticipations of what the modern situation is. The ancient forms of idolatry were polytheistic. The modern forms of idolatry are polymorphous in some way. They're, they're psychologically promiscuous. As to say, we, are, we're, we idolize people all over the place. None of the idolatries work because there's no transcendence and no fundamental transcendence. So we just idolize whoever happens to fascinate us for the moment, and then we go on to the next one. But meanwhile, all of that promiscuity is having a psychologically destabilizing effect. Kierkegaard says the purity of heart is to will one thing, to have a Lord, not half a dozen or you know, half a hundred, or not to change, change them every time the fashions change. You know. So the psychological stability has to do with the stabilization of the whole mimetic process at its ultimate level. So ultimately it is imitating the God in whose image we are made. That's ultimately it. But since that God is imageless, I am who am, that's all we have. We have to have an intermediary. And and that's what the Messiah is. The Messiah is the incarnate in- intermediary that allows the process of imitating the God in whose image we are made to proceed. I mean, that's the... To me, that's the coherence at the ontological level of the Christian revelation. Well, if we don't have that, it doesn't mean, you know, Tertullian said, uh, anima naturalitur Christiana, the soul is naturally Christian. And I want to someday come back and get into that a little bit because you could say this process I just described in terms of imitating the God in whose image I am made and having and needing an intermediary, a human uh, manifestation or incarnation of, of that God in order for the imitation process to proceed and so on. You could say that's really a blueprint of the human ontological situation. And so we... Something... That system, so to speak, that's not a way of talking about it. I don't know how to talk about it really, but... That process is going to go on one way or another. And 
if it goes on in a world with no transcendence, no focus, no, no reliable intermediary, you see, Paul says, it's a whole system of intermediaries. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, as he imitates the Father. That's, that's the vine and the branches. In a world where that's not operative, then it's not as though the, that we, we put that system aside and begin to live on the basis of some other one, some sort of cause and effect or some other kind of clunky system. It doesn't. We, we're still doing that. It's just that we're using, we're making, we're we're making gods and demons out of each other because we don't have a focus for that process. Well, okay. So that's. So I wanted to come back, maybe if there's time at the end of the session today, to talk about what I talked about some weeks ago, which is the hypostatic existence. Hypostasis is that word, Greek word, which means, which means, uh, hypo means under, and stasis is to stand. It means the ground. And sometimes theologians or mystics talk about the groundless ground of our being. And... Ultimately, we have to have roots that go into that. And the and Christianity is user-friendly in a sense. I'm mixing metaphors wildly. Christianity is user-friendly in the sense of the vine and branches discourse. Uh, would that I were John of the Cross... If I were John of the Cross, perhaps I could sink my roots directly into the groundless ground of my being. But this is also part of the mystery of the communion of saints. Nobody gets saved unless everybody's saved. You know? um, I can have those roots into that groundless ground of my being because I'm in... I'm in... I'm drawing life from the vine that has its roots in the groundless ground. And I'm drawing that life from that vine, not perhaps directly. Paul says, imitate me. Well, somebody is imitating somebody is imitating somebody is imitating Paul, is imitating Christ, is imitating his father. Now, one doesn't want to get too far out on the limb there, you know. <laughs> it's possible to get too far out, you know. You have to... One And also, I say this 2% solution, you know. I don't mean to canonize. We should all strive for five or something. So, but the point is, there's something human and forgiving about the Christian economy, the Christian redemptive economy, in that respect. It doesn't... Not that we shouldn't all try to be a little bit more like John of the Cross, but it doesn't require us to be John of the Crosses. It requires that we participate in this community in this unique and amazing way in which it's possible to be part of that redemptive economy in a very human way. And for me, what the response to the ontological dilemma and in our world the ontological crisis is discipleship. And so I was interested in the chapter in the Dalai Lama's book which talks about discipleship. 
And for the Dalai Lama, the discipleship is the relationship between the Buddhist disciple and the master. And in that, as I said before, the Dalai Lama says that the disciple must root out of his mind anything, any sensibility that will lead him finally to see any faults whatsoever in the master. And as I said, I don't think we Westerners are going to be able to do that very well. I think we are we're living in a biblically infected world. And that is to say a world which is demythologizing, anti-idolatrous. A world which, which does not want to put another human being, however great and holy and worthy of emulation he or she might be, does not want to put them on that kind of a pedestal. You see what I'm saying? So... Now, the reviewer, in the San Francisco paper, the, this book was reviewed, and the reviewer said, well, we obviously can't do that. We, we can't put out of our minds anything that would lead us to believe that there are faults in the master. And I think he's right. But I think what the San Francisco reviewer failed to see is why such an extreme measure is called for and why that particular extreme measure is called for. And I think it's called for because it introduces a hierarchy, which is not, by the way, a structural hierarchy in the in, in, in sense of a social structure. It's a relational hierarchy. It's, an it's, it's portable. It's a portable hierarchy in that sense. It's... It's a custom-designed hierarchy. The same master might be a master to a, a great number of disciples, but fundamentally it's tailored for the disciple. Nevertheless, it's a, it's a very steep hierarchy measured not in terms of power in the social order, but measured in terms of the absolute refusal to see that both members of the relationship are ordinary, flawed human beings. You see what I mean? Now, one of them may be far more flawed than the other one. We're not talking about measuring the, the relative flawed nature of the two people, but ruling altogether out the idea of flaws in one so that, why? This is the thing we have to say. Why would we do that? There's only one reason, really, and that's to give the disciple an experience of true transcendence. We can say, we can read this part of the Dalai Lama's book and say, oh, well, too bad, we can't do that in the West. And I think that's true. But if we don't realize that the Dalai Lama has just shown that there's only one alternative to this crisis that Shakespeare defines supremely in the Ulysses speech, fundamentally at the religious level, it is the experience of transcendence. To, to realize, to be palpably aware that one lives in a world in which something altogether outside of this world is ultimate. Uh, before go, I want to do something very strange. I want to compare the Dalai Lama and Sigmund Freud. Now this is... so. But in order to do that, I want to fill out what I think is in the Dalai Lama's thing. 
And here I'm led by the review that I read in the San Francisco paper, in which the reviewer not only said we can't do that, we can't put somebody on that kind of a pedestal, which I think is true, but, but also, but also f didn't see why the Dalai Lama thinks we have to do something like that. The reviewer went on to uh, quibble with one other thing that the Dalai Lama said, and that is, he said, that there were certain moral requirements that were required of the disciple or the, the, the Buddhist uh, practitioner, which was among, among which were, were sexual mores. The reviewer says, here, a Westerner may think of repressive elements of the Judeo-Christian tradition, in quote. This the worst thing you could say about the Dalai Lama's book, that he begins to sound like the Judeo-Christian tradition. And uh, so, I mean, this was the hope, no doubt, that he would not sound like the Judeo-Christian tradition because we're, we're, always like, we're always like Kipling, one of his poems. He says, he, he wants to ship me out Somewhere is east of Suez, where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments and the man can quench his thirst. And we want, we, we want to get outside the purview of this thing, you see. And our problem is, of course, the, those who are, who are ardent, faithful Judeo-Christians are just as likely to miss the profundity of the moral injunctions as those who are trying to get a break free of it, you know, because the profundity is at the anthropological and not the moral level. I mean, I think we ought to, I, don't, I think we ought to be a lot more moral than we are and think in moral terms, but the real profundity is the anthropological one. What is the Dalai Lama saying? So I, what I'd like to do just to, to give a feel for this is to, if you put those two things together, one is that you should uh, root out of your imagination anything that's going to lead eventually to the conclusion that your master has faults. That's one. The second one is that you must be wary of uh, of sexual of the breakdown of the, of sexual mores. Now, one could quibble with that what that means, but nevertheless, as a general as a general pointer or marker for the crisis, I don't think there's a better one. Not because we're preoccupied with sex or because sex is at the source of everything, the way Freud thought or anything like that. But because when the mimetic crisis begins, one of the things that is almost immediately caught up in the crisis is sexual affair. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the canary in the mind shaft. As soon as you get disturbances at that level, it's a way of saying, hey, What's going on here is much more fundamental than that. But but once you start the the Richter needle starts to bobbing back and forth at that level, you know you you're you're having a crisis or slipping into a crisis. So I would say we should read these two aspects of the Dalai Lama's analysis this way. The first is a focus on the absolute need for transcendence, or I should put it even more specifically, the absolute need for a relationship to a transcendent one. And that's what the relationship between the disciple and the master is, and as the Dalai Lama has defined it. And the second one is, we should be alert to signs of spiritual, psychological, and moral desperation 
whose root cause is idolatry and whose symptoms are disturbances at the sexual level. Disturbances, as to say, a kind of sexual... What, what, in, what at, one, at one degree of exacerbation we call sexual hysteria. And the sexual hysteria can be, can be uh, heterosexual, homosexual, and so on. Doesn't. The, the point is far less what exactly form it's taking, but more the hysteria of it. And uh, that's another thing I want to come back to and think more about is this business of hysteria. And idolatry, I think, I would define idolatry as the intense and compulsive fascination with a non-transcendent other. An intense and compulsive fascination, maybe negative, fascination, maybe positive fascination, maybe a combination of both, a kind of love-hate, which often happens when the, when the other is the model as well as the rival, and so on. All I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there's an anthropological fact behind the Dalai Lama's program and his, his insistence on the need for a transcendent other and the wariness of, of disturbances at the level of sexual affairs, uh, those are, I think, very valid things. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that we in the West can't do it, I think, the way the Dalai Lama... If that's the, if that's the sine qua non of the Buddhist path, as the Dalai Lama, I think, implies, then I think it's going to be difficult for us Westerners. So, now, what does it, why is it difficult for us Westerners? And that's what I wanted to do next, and, and that is to think about Freud and the Dalai Lama. I, I hope it's not because I'm a broken record, but because these things fascinate me, and they're in my mind, or in the back of my mind all the time. So when I read something else, these things get triggered, and I think, and then I they set up a kind of resonance dissonance in my mind and I, I want to bring these two things together and see if in some kind of dialogue something will happen, you know, something else. And the oddest one happened this week, which was I was thinking about the Dalai Lama and all that, and I remembered Freud, this passage in Freud, which we talked about some weeks ago or maybe more recently, I can't even remember. But it's Freud's description of the treatment of hypnosis. I digress again here for a second. One of the... I, 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 have, to, I have to resist the impulse to go off completely on a tangent that might take several months thinking about the whole question of hysteria. Because psychoanalysis and all of its prodigy is born in the problematic of hysteria. And hysteria is the mimetic disturbance par excellence. And I think that's been demonstrated. In any event, Freud began to work with hysterics. And these are, these are clinical, acute psychoses, hysterical psychoses. And he began to work with them, and he found, as others did, he was working with Brewer and other people, 
he found that hypnosis was a successful therapy, or to some extent was successful, with hysterics. And hypnosis is... Hysteria, I would... Very quickly, I would say hysteria is the attempt to close down or repulse a mimetic influence, to close down one's, one's uh, sensibilities so as to uh, immunize oneself against a mimetic influence or to throw off that mimetic influence by demonstrating, by some kind of histrionics, you know, demonstrating that I am really me and not you and so on. I mean, it's very complicated, but I think it's, it is a response to the, the influence of the other, the mimetic influence of the other that's being experienced as unwanted, as, as self-threatening, that is to say threatening to the subjectivity of the hysteric himself. So it's a mimetic complication par excellence, I think. And hypnosis is what? Turning yourself over to another. So the cure and the disease are the same thing, except that one is ex- a, a willing acceptance of this deference, this act of deferring, if you could put it that way. And the other is, is a rejection of this. In any event, so that's, that's, that's uh, material for a much, much more extended conversation sometime. But in any event, when Freud, before Freud began to churn out the sort of Freudiama that came later once he turned to sexual theory, he experimented with, with hypnosis and he found it fascinatingly therapeutic for these situations. And he even understood or began, it seems to me, he began to sense its mimetic nature. And at that moment or shortly thereafter, he switched completely because he was afraid of this idea of suggestion. He didn't like that. It wasn't quite psychological enough, you see. Uh, It was a little too social in its implications. The Buddhist path is a is a revered, respectable path, and we all should be grateful for its presence in our world. The question is whether or not it it will it will work without serious modifications in the Western world. And so, to think about that, I wanted to turn back to to this passage in Freud where he talks about the transference. He doesn't talk about the transference so much. He talks about the the preliminary to, to his theory of transference, which was his analysis of hypnotism. So the transference relationship is, a, is simply a more attenuated form of the hypnotic relationship, if you see what I'm saying. The relationship between the therapist and the, and the patient, which is a transference one, is an attenuated form of the same relationship between the hypnotist and the hypnotic subject. And so when Freud thinks about the hypnotic relationship, he thinks about it in terms which in, at pla- in places are explicitly uh, anticipating his work on the transference. So here's what he says, and then let's just think about the Dalai Lama and the modern crisis with Freud for a second in the foreground. Freud says, let us recall that hypnosis has something positively uncanny about it. The characteristic of uncanniness suggests something old and familiar that has undergone repression. So uncanny always, uncanny is a religious category. That's to say, it's a category in, in primitive religion or archaic religion, uncanny, when something is uncanny. 
That's why when people go to horror films, why do people go to horror films? Because they have because of a religious hunger, and it's perverse. It's perverse because in horror films you get. You see, in grade B films, you get good and bad, right and wrong. In horror films, you get good and evil. And evil is a religious category. Bad and wrong are moral, social categories. But evil is a religious category. How did I get off on this? You see, this is what's happening. Anyway, the point is uncanny. That's what it is, uncanny. There's something uncanny about this hypnotic relationship. And Freud says, let us consider how hypnosis is induced. The hypnotist asserts that he is in possession of a mysterious power that robs the subject of his own will, or which is the same thing, the subject believes this of him. Now, we have to be careful now. When Freud says robs, there's a value judgment there. It's not a value judgment that applies to the Dalai Lama's program. You see? So we have to be careful to sort this out. For the Dalai Lama, the same process is going on, but it's not, it's setting this person free. But Freud's a Westerner, you know, he's concerned with individuality in the kind of clumsy Western way we think of those things. So he sees it as robbing, and it probably is, given the fact that who knows who this hypnotist is. You see, he's probably not the Dalai Lama. If he were the Dalai Lama, rob would probably not be appropriate. In any event, so then Freud says, this mysterious power must be the same power that is looked upon by primitive peoples as the source of taboo, the same that emanates from kings and chieftains and makes it dangerous to approach them. The hypnotist, then, is supposed to be in possession of this power. And how does he manifest it? By telling the subject to look him in the eyes. His most typical method of hypnotizing is by his look. Well, now this is a little different than the relationship in, in the Dalai Lama system between the disciple and the master. Nevertheless, you, you see that there is, that, that what the hypnotist has as at his disposal for his therapeutic use is a kind of absolute distinction. He has a power which both he and the hypnotic subject recognize as being something the hypnotic subject does not have. And it's that power that has the curative potential and so on. So that it, it, in, in that sense, it represents a, a, a kind of absolute distinction between the two of them, similar structurally to the relationship in, in the, uh, that the Dalai Lama is talking about. The point I'm trying to make is the Dalai Lama is writing a book for the Western world in which he's trying to prescribe, you could say, if we could do this pharmacologically, he's trying to prescribe a medicine for the disease we have. And he says, what you have to do is you have to submit yourself to a master, no questions asked, absolute submission, hierarchical relationship, and no thought of any ordinary human faults in this person. And something like that exists in the Freudian system. And it works in both cases, in quotation marks. It works in both cases. The hysteric experiences therapeutic benefits from the hypnosis and the mind and heart of the Buddhist disciple begins to clear in this deferential relationship to the master. So I think that's pretty interesting. Now here's where the second shoe drops for the Westerner. Freud says, 
he's talking about inducing the hypnosis by looking the, the hypnotic subject in the eye. But he says sometimes a bright object is used or a monotonous sound, or in Buddhism, you know, a, a koan or a meditative practice of some kind or some kind of focus with the eyes. There are all kinds of practices like this that would transfer from one to the other, from the hypnotic relationship to the relationship of, of the disciple to the master and to the path of uh, Buddhist enlightenment and so on. And Freud says it's misleading to think that this little object is fundamental or significant in and of itself. In point of fact, Freud says, these procedures merely serve to divert conscious attention and to hold it riveted. The situation is the same as if the hypnotist had said to the subject, now, this is in quotation marks, now, concern yourself exclusively with my person. The rest of the world is quite uninteresting. Freud says, this is what the, the little bright object that you're swinging in front of the hypnotic subject's eyes, that's what it does. It simply... It simply keeps the hypnotic subject from getting distracted while at the same time allowing the influence of the hypnotist total total effect. So it says, the little bright object says, but it doesn't say it out loud, it says, concern yourself wholly with the hypnotist and nothing else. Nothing else is important. And then Freud says, it would, of course, be technically inexpedient for the hypnotist to say that out loud. It would tear the subject away from his unconscious attitude and stimulate him to conscious opposition. Now, what did the Dalai Lama say in his chapter? He said it out loud. What did the San Francisco journalist do? He immediately took exception. You see, because it was said out loud, and so this is the Western world. You see what I'm saying? It, it won't work in the Western world. And Freud understood that already. He, in a sense, he understood that it was very delicate. Well, Freud understands it's delicate in the West. And he also understands... So uh, let me read the last thing he says and then come back to this. He says, he would, if, we're, if the hypnotist were to say this out loud, it would stimulate him to... It would shatter the unconscious relationship, make it conscious, make it clear, and stimulate him, quote, to conscious opposition. But at the same time, the subject is in reality unconsciously concentrating, as long as the spell's not broken, unconsciously concentrating his whole attention upon the hypnotist and is getting into an attitude of rapport, comma, of transference onto him. You see how this leads, this eventually, this is the seed of Freud's understanding of transference in the psychotherapeutic relationship later on in Freud's, the development of Freudian theory. Well, here's the, here is exactly the problem, and it's the problem of whether we can, whether this hierarchical relationship or relationship of, of uh, idolatry, to some extent you could call it that, that's probably too, too pejorative a term, but to refuse... For, for the best of reasons, to refuse to recognize any human faults in this person, the best of reasons, for the same reason, if, if the hysteric wants to be cured by hypnosis, he needs not to have the bubble burst. It can't burst. And Freud says, if it bursts, then he develops an attitude of, 
of conscious opposition. And therefore, his cure doesn't work. And the Dalai Lama is saying the same thing. You could say, I mean, there's structural similarities in what they're talking about. Both of them are coming up against the fact that in the West, it doesn't work very well. So what, when Freud later on begins to talk about the countertransference and so on, I know the countertransference is quite complicated and, or it's been made complicated over the years and so on, and it's, it's not uniformly treated in Freud's work either, but when Freud talks about the countertransference, he's talking about a relationship that's like the Dalai Lama relationship that suddenly begins to deteriorate, that begins to be reciprocal in a way in which absolute or hierarchical relationships are never reciprocal in that way. You see what I'm saying? A reciprocity comes into play, and it's then kind of back and forth, and the reciprocity tends to cause the relationship to change from a positive one of emulation, adulation, and so on, into a negative one, into what Freud calls conscious opposition. And this has to do, I think, also with the modern crisis. Kierkegaard says the, the characteristic of the modern world is that we have, we have moved from the world of happy admiration into the world of unhappy envy, which is just a way of talking about this, this, the, the, the crisis of degree, in a way. And the inability to restore some kind of order by artificially imposing a hierarchy even though that would cure us. The high, if I could simply, if we all had a master, even if he was just the, the master of, you know, that we really revered and saw as, as, as worthy of giving our lives to his or her cause, that would cure us of 98% of our craziness. Now, it, would it free us? No, that's the problem. It would cure us, but it wouldn't free us. It would cure us in the sense that, you know, a frontal lobotomy would cure us. You sense? <laughs> but now the two problems here: one is to be cured of our absolute craziness, and the other is to be set free. And now, don't get me wrong. I think the Buddhist path is a path of liberation. The name of the of, of the Dalai Lama's book is a path to freedom, or something to that effect. And I think that's true. But one could say that it's that those that those relationships in monastic societies or in in uh, the master disciple relationship in Buddhism and elsewhere, one could say truthfully that it, that what they do is they break the the very powerful self will reflex, which that's the problem with us Westerners. We think freedom and self will are the same thing, and that's why we're such slaves. But self will is probably not. A, a powerful enough analytical tool because it's, it's, so, it's so mimetic. If we, when we say self-will, we, we're throwing the problem back into just the individual, sort of the ego problem and so on. Self-will itself is a little bit of a delusion because self-will, what is self-will? When, when do I have self-will? Well, you, if you analyze it a little bit, you realize that there's somebody else's desire in there. You've caught the desire from somebody else in some way. So that self-will, I think, is not quite the way to analyze it. But the point I wanted to try to make is, is that when Nietzsche describes the modern world, which he does in his 
perverse way, brilliantly, he says the problem is resentment. The problem is is resentment. Resentment means a sentiment that's reciprocal. Re-sentiment. It's a sentiment that has suddenly become... It's a reciprocity where suddenly the, the hierarchy has collapsed. And what would have been, as, as Ulysses says in his speech, you know, would have been the whole relationship by degree, a relationship of deference and, and genuine respect and admiration and obedience and so on and so forth, all up and down the line, suddenly collapses and you have reciprocity, you have resentment, and everybody is... And the Ulysses speech is a perfect thing. Everybody's trying to step over the one on top of them and so on. You get the crisis. For both Freud and the Dalai Lama... perhaps more for Freud because he's more thoroughly Western, the relationship that we need to have, which is one in which there is transcendence, real transcendence, enough transcendence to cure us of the crisis, the central feature of which is the lack of transcendence, the modern crisis. So, that relationship in which there's enough transcendence to be therapeutic for us is precarious. And that's why the Dalai Lama says, root out every thought you have that might make you think that you and that master of yours are, the, are on the same level because if it comes to that, the whole problem of reciprocity comes in and then you say, well, that's what you think, this is what I think, and da 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 and the whole thing is lost. The therapeutic value the spiritual value, the centering, the ontological grounding. You remember now we're talking about grounding, ontological grounding. And in the Buddhist tradition, one's ontological grounding is the, the master. And in order to have it, we have to put him or her on a pedestal. Okay, for Freud, it's the same thing. He realizes how precarious it is. At any moment, this thing might, might uh, suddenly the the Western antipathy for this kind of hierarchy or, or absolutizing might click in and you get the counter-transference and the, and the conscious opposition and the resentment and all the rest of it. So it's very precarious. Okay, it's in light of that that I want to just say what I said at the beginning and that is that I think what Christianity, Pauline, particularly Pauline Christianity, presents to us or for us is a relationship in which there is there is transcendence even though there's no absolutizing of the one who is transmitting the, the transcendence. Basically what I was trying to do last week is to take a look at the Dalai Lama's urging to Buddhist disciples never to allow a thought to enter their minds which would eventually lead them to see, to, to see faults in their spiritual master. And I was trying to compare that, and so you would say Dalai, the Dalai Lama recognized that, that that was the key. I would say, now this is just my commentary on that, but I would say the, the, the wisdom of that is a wisdom based on a whole lot of experience. And that is that the, that the spiritual benefits, the spiritual liberation that Buddhism 
aspires to is more likely to bear fruit under those circumstances than under the opposite one. So that's interesting. All I tried to do last week is to, is to show that what the Dalai Lama is talking about and what Freud is talking about are structurally similar. To some extent, Freud worked out his, his psychological theories in the first instance in terms of the problem of hysteria. And he found that hypnotism was a, a helpful therapeutic tool for curing hysteria. And he tried to pay attention to that and see what it was. And, and, the hip, and what he noticed was that the hypnotist has a certain power. He's regarded as what we would call uh, at least socially transcendent to the hypnotic subject. The hypnotic subject, as Freud says, uh, regards the hypnotist as someone possessing a certain power that he does not possess. And so there's this, there's this hierarchical relationship between the hypnotic subject and the hypnotist. And Freud says this is the key to this, the therapeutic value. And later Freud develops in a larger context the idea of the transference relationship which has all kinds of problems. It's very delicate and everything. I tried to explore that last week. Nevertheless, it has therapeutic value. So all I tried to do last week is to, is to show that what the Dalai Lama is talking about and what Freud is talking about are structurally similar. So both Dal Dalai Lama and Freud recognize that there's value in this kind of hierarchical relationship. I call it hierarchical even though there are t only two people involved in it because clearly the benefits, the spiritual benefits in the Buddhist uh, situation and the psychological benefits in the Freudian situation are due to the fact that the, that the, that the master and the disciple or the, uh, the psychotherapist and the patient are not on the same level, that one of them is socially transcendent to the other one, and that there is a relationship of, uh, of deference and surrender to some extent in both uh, situations and that these are beneficial spiritually and psychologically. So I wanted to explore that m more today because Freud even makes an explicit socio-political parallel because he says, talking about the hypnotist, and in, he could just as well have been talking about the, the uh, psychoanalyst in a transference relationship, he says, quote, this mysterious power that the hypnotist has or that the hypnotic subject thinks he has this mysterious power must be the same power that is looked upon by primitive people as a source of taboo, the same that emanates from kings and chieftains. So he makes a socio-political parallel in trying to analyze it. And all I want to do today is to follow that up a little bit uh, and see that there is something socially therapeutic about hierarchical relationships. That is to say, hierarchical, to have someone at the pinnacle of a social hierarchy is socially therapeutic. Now, it may be false, it may be completely conjured, it may be totally artificial, it may be imposed, it may be a, a result of propaganda, it's all kinds of bad things about it, and we can get into that, and of course we in the West have gotten into that uh, in a big way. But the point I want to make is that it's socially therapeutic, and so I want to explore that a little bit. Now, to give an example, you see, I said last week the Dalai Lama is writing his book to Westerners because in the West, 
and as the reviews of his book have suggested, it's perfectly obvious, in the West, we refuse to abide by such hierarchical relationships. We come from, an, from a demythologizing, anti-idolatrous tradition, very vigorously so, so that what the Dalai Lama suggests as a way of privileging this figure is pretty much out for us Westerners. And so we, we find ourselves unable to follow that path. But the point of the... so And I, and I think that that's true. I think we, we Westerners would have a hard time with that. Nevertheless, as I tried to emphasize last week, what we have to see is what the disease the Dalai Lama is trying to avoid. Now, I'm treating this as though this is just his recipe for curing us Westerners. It's not. It's the Buddhist path to enlightenment. So I'm not trying to reduce it to something else. But if we just see it as something, obviously the Dalai Lama thinks it would be spiritually beneficial for us, for more of us, to follow this path. And I think that assessment is perfectly true. And I, I think we should recognize that whether or not his cure is one that we can swallow, so to speak, it clearly is a cure for the disease we have. We may not be able to swallow it, but it is a cure for the disease we have, and what we have to do is understand the disease that we have. So, so the disease we have is the opposite of the cure. It, so, for example, you have here the Dalai Lama saying, you have to have those figures who remain exempt from your criticism. And they have to be outside of that world of critical evaluation in order for them to be of spiritual value for you. Now, I think we in the West, I think something's going on in, in the Christian West which is more complicated than that and more nuanced and in a sense almost more mysterious. Nevertheless, I, I want to give great respect to the Dalai Lama's position because it's absolutely apropos of the problem that we face. Now, to give you an example of the problem we face, I want to read to you something from the newspaper. Now, well, there are two things. I want to read two newspaper stories today. Both of them have names in them, you know, and if I, if I could think of some way to block out the names, then I they would be about these, these anonymous people. That would be good because it would help at least avoid the business of scapegoating others. In any event, all I'm doing is quoting from this newspaper article. Very seriously, I do want to say that this article and, the, and especially the later one I'm going to quote, I'm not using them as a, as a moral bludgeoned in order to show that these people are goofy or whatever, but to try to get at symptoms of the contemporary spiritual malaise. Uh, so I'm going to read this article to you. Now, it's written by Richard Rodriguez, who is a very good writer, and uh, I, I, I commend his, uh, his observations and his sensibility to you. This was in last Sunday's Examiner, maybe some of you saw it, the title of the article is Amoral Aliens Invade the Colonies. The subtitle is British Tabloid Culture is Infecting the Magazine World Top to Bottom. So, 
Let me read this to you. Again, I'm not trying to uh, publicly pillory these figures, but simply to say that they represent us all, that they represent maybe a slightly more uh, advanced stage of the, the disease that we moderns seem to have. So here's what, uh, and, and I'm, I'm doing this in order for us to see how right the Dalai Lama is, in a way. The article starts this way. I've just been reading the February issue of Vanity Fair, wherein Christopher Hitchens, a British subject, describes Mother Teresa as the ghoul of Calcutta. Hitchens' essay, Mother Teresa and Me, is a justification of a television expose that he wrote and presented last year on Britain's Channel 4. Do you see why I'm mentioning this? The idea that nobody is exempt. You see, the total leveling of everything. Now, you'll see how conscious, how self-conscious this is in just a minute. Rodriguez goes on, Hitchens belongs among that generation of British journalists and editors, amoral aliens, who have invaded New York and Washington. In New York, the knaves edit he and she fashion magazines, disport themselves in political journals, but the great Brit obsession is with fame, which is what our course is about, which is one of the reasons why I'm reading this to you. And then Rodriguez goes on, Tina Brown is perhaps the most famous of the pilgrims. Brown left London some years ago after editing a society mag called The Tattler. And then she went to Vanity Fair and from there to The New Yorker. Rodriguez goes on. She brought, uh, Tina Brown, brought to the pages of Vanity Fair an obsession with celebrity that revealed a resentment of those in the world more famous than she. Now, so, an obsession with celebrity that's also resentful. You see, now we have, we have the modern problem. Kierkegaard says this, the, the symptom of modernity at the psychological level is the transition from the, the happy love of admiration to the unhappy love of envy. You see, there you have it. And fame is... Fame really is, as I think Browdy intuited, this phenomenon of fame and the deconstruction of fame and the democratization of fame and everybody gets 15 minutes of it and so on is really a very salient symbol or symptom of our situation. So Rodriguez, a little while later in his article, turns his ire on Christopher Hitchens. He says, Caring too much is bad form in London, too tiresome. Hitchin dares his readers to get angry. These are, by the way, this is like thinking my daughter again, you know, in the sixth grade you have these textbooks where the important words are bold and then they end up in the glossary so you can always go back and find, you know what I mean? And so you, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a learning technique. So we're, this is oral here, but just note that there are some words that are bold words that we, we need to come back to and even phrases. And um, certainly things like uh, the, the obsession with celebrity, which reveals a resentment, etc. That would be a key. That would be in italics, I suppose. And then we would have words like anger. Now that would be a bold word. So then we have to come back and we have to collate all these 
and see how uh, how they how they all come together and relate. So uh, Rodriguez says Hitchens dares his readers to get angry. The pose is not to have a stake in any matter. Though of course the clever drones do have their saints and their pieties, fur lib, aids, Saint John Lennon. I mean, Rodriguez is not a right winger, by the way. I mean, th- I think Rodriguez is beyond the left-right uh, thing. Nevertheless, he's just pointing out this. So he goes on to say, uh, "Clever Brits are leftish and secular. They are anti-Christian." That's one sentence. They are anti-Christian. They are vaguely for the Dalai Lama and all that, bells and mist. You see, well, they're vaguely for the Dalai Lama until he read his book. And in his book, he has some very harsh things to say about the sexual mores of modern society. And he also says this thing about the relationship to the, to the Buddhist master. So, that would, so Rodriguez is already out of date, maybe, because he's writing this. The, they're vaguely for the Dalai Lama and will remain vaguely for the Dalai Lama and, until the Dalai Lama clears up the vagueness and then they'll go on to something else. I'm being nasty, and I don't mean to be sanctimonious, but I'm just trying to say these are symptoms of, 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 a, of a very widespread and pervasive attitude and atmosphere that we live in. So Rodriguez goes on, They most certainly abhor what they call fundamentalism, especially any Muslim or Christian variant, which is synonymous with taking life seriously, which is not any longer possible as they see it. Then Rodriguez says, in his piece, Hitchens, uh, he, he's quoting from a piece that Hitchens has written. Rodriguez says, uh, in his piece, Hitchens recalls editorial meetings. This is why I wanted to read this article to you, this paragraph. Uh, Hitchens recalls editorial meetings at the now defunct Private Eye, which I suppose is a magazine. Quote, this is quoting from Hitchens' article about these editorial meetings. Claude Coburn would sit the team of hacks and satirists around the table and say, Right, who does anyone think is wonderful? Who gets a free pass? Someone in the room would venture a name like Albert Schweitzer. Let's go after Schweitzer, he would say. End quote. Now, Think about that, and think about the Dalai Lama. You see, the Dalai Lama says, "If you want to get out of this mess, you better have at least one person that you don't do that to." And here we have a picture of people doing it gratuitously. You see, gratuitously, the leveling of everything. Everything has to be brought down. Every standard, every value, everything that has some claim, moral claim on us, has to be reduced because it's an insult. It's a it's a it's a standard that 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 declares that there's something that is worth obeying. You see, something that's worth deference. And this is obviously a very exaggerated. That's one of the reasons. One of the reasons you look at symptoms like this is because it's very, it's in high relief. It's a very exaggerated one, but it's, it's the revolutionary spirit gone amok. You see what I mean? And it's, it's Ulysses and Trollus and Cressida, 
they say to Ulysses, what's wrong? And he says, take but degree away, untune, that's degree is this hierarchical structure of whatever kind, and untune that string and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility and the rude son should strike his father dead. It's exactly this. It's that operating at a cultural level. Well, the Dalai Lama, what does he say? Quote, this is a quote from the Dalai Lama. You should constantly and deliberately try to prevent the kind of perceptions that lead you to see faults in the spiritual master. Whereas, Claude Coburn says... Who does anyone think is wonderful? Who gets a free ride? Albert Schweitzer? Let's go after Schweitzer. So what I'm trying to say is there's a socio-political therapeutic value comparable to the spiritual value that, that the Dalai Lama sees in not criticizing the master and that Freud sees in the transference relationship where the psychotherapist or the hypnotist is is uh, is regarded as transcendent in some way. There's a socio-political version of that, which is that societies benefit from having a figurehead, a, a uh, the observed of all observers, that is not subject to this kind of criticism. That's regarded as the British once regarded their monarchy. You see, with affection and reverence. Now, does that mean? Is this true transcendence? You see, it's social transcendence. They're exempt. Is it true transcendence? No. Is it true that the, that the, that the uh, psychoanalyst is somehow truly transcendent with respect to the patient? No. Is it true that the, that the Buddhist master is true, fundamentally transcendent from, in a different order of things from the disciple? I think not. Is it true that the, the British monarchy is transcendent? No. Nevertheless, it's a false transcendence. What I'm trying to say is there, this whole system may be a false transcendence, but it's therapeutic. In other words, if the psychoanalyst, if the patient comes in, the first thing the psychoanalyst does, say he's a modern therapist, first thing he does is says, oh, there's no difference between me and you. I'm just like you. I'm just as screwed up as you are. Well, let's talk about it. He's not going to have the least bit of effect. You see what I mean? He may be as screwed up. He likely is as screwed up. But that's not the point. The point is whether it's going to have some therapeutic value. It doesn't. And likewise, society. This trend, Now, we, I think we're entering a world where it's going to be very difficult to have these kinds of artificial hierarchies because we now know too much. We now know too much. And we know too much not because we're smart, but because... I think the biblical revelation is breaking in on us and deconstructing the myths that st- set up those hierarchies and informing us that we are all uh, children of God. We're all equal in God's eyes. So it may be a false transcendence. For the person who is the observed of all observers, it's a false ontology, very likely a false ontology. Who am I? Well, I'm the king, or I'm the famous one, or I'm the star, or I'm the, you see, the, the one who's, who's the object of the adulation. But it's a false ontology, just as the, 
from the point of view of the of the observers or the worshipers or the uh, subjects, uh, it's a false transcendence. Both of them begin to break down, and both of them have serious consequences when they do break down. Nevertheless, all I'm saying is they have a they 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 form or perform a very important spiritual role as long as they exist. Now, when they stop existing, which is the world we're in, then we have to take up the slack. In other words, what we have to realize is that once they begin to dissolve, we have a huge anthropological problem because the old form of transcendence, which used to help solve the problem, isn't there anymore. And we have a huge ontological problem because those people who still try to establish some kind of ontological grounding using the obs- the ob- the uh, observations of others, you see, just get deeper and deeper in tr- into trouble. And so I think this is the world we live in. I don't know if I mentioned this last week or not, but I, th- I have this notion of the of the psychological or psychosocial version of the Caiaphas principle. Caiaphas, you know, says better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed. Fame is an extension of the sacrificial system. That's one of the things I tried to argue in earlier weeks because the king is the victim with a suspended sentence and so on. Uh, but if Caiaphas says it's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed, that's the sacrificial logic par excellence. Uh, one could say it's better that we idolize one figure than that our idolatrous glances begin going in all directions. You see, turning each other into into idols and going from one to the other and having the whole thing break down. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go we, we resort to idolatry. We can't. All, all I'm trying to point out is that once we can't, we're in a serious crisis and we have to come to grips with what that means. Perhaps it's worth mentioning at this point, even though it's a little bit out of the context of what I'm trying to say. I think from a Christian perspective, there's only one human transcendent figure. There's only one who is in a category of one, and that's Christ. And we can participate in the transcendence that Christ represents in terms of the vine and branches in in the Gospel of John. In other words, there are people who are who who are disciples to speaking to use the Christian terminology, who are disciples of Christ, who can be for us masters or teachers or leaders or uh, exemplary figures, so that the so that the connection can be can be attenuated in that way. But there's only, I think, in the Christian. Uh, world really, there's only one truly transcendent figure, and uh, and that's and that's Christ. And all other forms of transcendence, real transcendence, have to do with some kind of connection to that figure. Now that's speaking entirely in the Christian context, but I think the I think the we, we will be able to I hope we will be able to articulate the the truth and significance of that. Uh, feature of the Christian economy more and more in the modern world because it's certainly relevant, supremely relevant to the crisis that's on us. Anyway, what I want to do today is 
I wanted to go back and follow Browdy a little bit. We're, we're about to run out of, of uh, sessions in this series, and I haven't really dealt with Browdy very much, Browdy's book on uh, the, the uh, uh, frenzy of renown. And I wanted to follow on. I did a little bit last week or week before, I guess, with, with Alexander the Great, and now I want to follow on and do a little bit of commentary on what Browdy does with, um, with the Roman tradition. And I just, I, I hope it'll bring out some things about this social transcendence. First of all, Browdy notes, quote, few self-assertions, especially those staged in public, are ever wholly original. Alexander the Great ostentatiously imitated Achilles among the other gods and heroes. Julius Caesar mourned the fact that he had not done as much as Alexander. Well, Alexander, as Alexander looked to Achilles, Julius Caesar looked to Alexander, you see, one always looks to those that are, have already been deified, in a sense, have already become celestial, have been celestialized, or have been uh, become figures of myth. In other words, they have earned their place in the firmament. And so one wants to earn the place in the firmament. How do you earn your place in the firmament? First of all, you can't earn it. Read St. Paul. You can't get there from here. You can't earn it. It's a matter of grace. It's given to you. And I don't want to get into Paul, but the point is there's, that's a very powerful thing. Anyway, what I want to do is go back and see not only the ontological business of people trying to become substantial, What's Julius Caesar want? He wants substantiality. He wants something that lasts. And so he's ambitious for that. Now, in Roman times, ambition, and Greco-Roman times, ambition was ambition for fame, purely and simply. I mean, there was ambition for money, but that was ancillary to the question of fame. What I want to notice here is that Julius Caesar was the first of these figures, ambitious figures, to, to actually seek out the role, the office of Pontifex Maximus, which was the head of the state religion in Rome. That's the office that Caesar wanted. Nobody else wanted it. It was a, you know, how many divisions does the Pope have? It was, a, it was a, uh, an uninteresting and seemingly politically neutral kind of position, except Julius Caesar went for it and got it. And on the strength, and he also insisted, he worked towards having it become an elective office. So it was both religious and based on, on uh, crowd approval. And you know the, the great Latin phrase, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. This is all part of that. And in, in any event, Caesar, Browdy says this of Caesar, through an office like Pontifex Maximus, Caesar could add the dimension of divine sanction to his actions. Now, this is part of what it require, what part of what it takes to be this other figure. In a sense, you see this in both the Freudian and the Dalai Lama's uh, arrangement. Somebody altogether other, and Caesar understood that this altogether other had to be religious. Uh, it, if one was going to 
to be that other, one had to have some religious, there were religious pretensions involved at least. Caesar's grandnephew, Octavian, later known as uh, Caesar Augustus, formalized and institutionalized this deification. He also took the office of Pontifex Maximus, but he became explicitly divinized. So he was the divine Augustus, you see. So, and he's the one that gave Rome its great, that ushered in the great, the great uh, Pax Romana. Now, uh, Suetonius, in the, I'm, this is all in Browdiot, but he's gathered everything there that you'd need. Suetonius, in the lives, his, his history of the Caesars, uh, quotes something that's been often said about Augustus, which is, he found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. And I would say what we should do is think about that as a metaphor, a symbol, for the deification of Augustus. Because marble, you think of marble as being the, the, the stone of the temple, you see. Something that has religious significance. So he found Rome a city of bricks and he left it a city of marble. How did he do that? By sacralizing himself. You see, I would say, now this is, he did it in lots of ways. He did it as a very skilled politician and all the rest of it. But I would just say we should see this as a, as a metaphor for what sacrality does. Sacrality uh, has a tremendously powerful, socially riveting, stabilizing effect on a culture. Now, desacralization has the opposite effect. And just to give another metaphor for it, so we have over here, and Augustus, Caesar Augustus and, and Jesus are nice, makes a nice diptych, you see, because both were, both were regarded as uh, incarnations of God. Both were regarded as sons of God. Both were, were uh, uh, seen as transcendent in that sense. And one, of course, was on the throne in Rome and the other one was on the cross outside Jerusalem. So it's quite a difference. But I want, you to, I want to compare this phrase. He, he found Rome a city of bricks and made a city of marble with the following. In the Gospel of John, you probably heard me say this before. In the Gospel of John, the two times that there's mention of the crowd wanting to stone Jesus occur when Jesus is in the temple precinct. And I would say, this is an elaboration, this is a midrash, I would say, if he's in the, tip, if he's in the temple and they're going to stone him, where are they going to get the stone? And I would say, well, they're going to have to get them from somewhere in the, in the temple structure. So that Jesus represents the revelation of the whole system so that every time the, the scapegoating sacrificial mechanism is, is cranked up in his presence or in his aftermath, every time, in the cranking up of that mechanism involves a deconstruction of the very temple that houses the, the most sacred form of the s sacrificial system. Now, you know, 
the word lapidation simply means to stone somebody. That's a form of capital punishment, lapidation. Well, if these people who want to stone Jesus grab stones, if they have to grab them out of the, out of the wall of the temple, what does that involve? That's a delapidation. It's a lapidation of the crucified one and a delapidation of the sacrificial system. It's the opposite of what Augustus was doing. Augustus found a city of bricks and made it to a city of marble. And Jesus found this magnificent temple and left it in shambles. Now, you say, well, Jesus didn't destroy the temple. I understand historically. and so on. But the, as, the, as the first Christians realized through a glass darkly, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 had to be related. Not, I don't mean it was related in terms of any kind of cause and effect, but it had to be related in terms of meaning to the cross. And I think that was, a, that was an absolutely brilliant insight, and it's true. And the, so when, anyway, why am I doing this? Um, because I want to show that we live in a world that's the, in which these things are being deconstructed. And, and we have to uh, understand what's at stake and what it looks like. In other words, I feel we need to be able to see what's going on in our world and recognize it anthropologically for what it is. Can, can we go to this, to this editorial meeting in which people are saying, who's, who's left out there? Is, anyone, is anybody left standing? Is anybody out there still have some kind of social, widespread social prestige? If so, let's get them. What we have to do is understand that not in terms of the mean-spiritedness of the people involved, but in terms of the cultural crisis that's on us. Anyway, what I want to do, really what I want to do this morning, this is too much preparation, what I really want to do is talk about Virgil's notion of fame. Now, Virgil, in a sense, represents the Greco-Roman notion of fame, but... Virgil has been regarded for a long time, particularly in the Middle Ages. Virgil was regarded as a, as a, as a, uh, a kind of pre-Christian, a, a Roman prophet, so to speak. Not only because of the fourth eclogue, where he talks about the, uh, you know, the the Messiah coming and so on, but because he seemed, and I think it's appropriate, because Virgil seems to know too much for his own good. He understands the process too well to be able to give total allegiance to it, even though he's taken on literary projects which require total allegiance. So he writes these poems like the Aeneid, uh, in which uh, he's, he does all the things about fame and the glory of Rome that one would expect, but he can't help himself. He keeps cutting across the grain, deconstructing it as he goes. So I think the Aeneid is one of the most fascinating texts, ancient texts we have. And I went back into it this last week, and I haven't taught it in years, and I thought just started aching to teach it again. Same way when I was reading Troilus and Cressida, I was felt, i, I got to get back to Shakespeare. <laughs> in any event, I want to just bring out a few things. And there, some of these things are in Browdy, so I'll read from Browdy as well, but then I'll, I'll turn to uh, the text of Virgil. For Virgil... There's only one word. It's fama. Fama means fame. But for Virgil, he uses it in many contexts. And English translators translate it differently according to the context. 
Sometimes it's very, it's the old-fashioned fama that all the all the Homeric heroes uh, sought and so on, that everybody, uh, all the adulation has to do with that. It's fame in that really significant sense, which was significant for the, the Christianity criticized that fame very profoundly. But nevertheless, in the Greco-Roman world, it was the only thing to aspire to. Sometimes Virgil talks that way. And other times he talks about fame, and the English translators translate it rumor, gossip. You see, it's, it's vulgar fame. It's deconstructing fame. It's fame that causes crowd contagion. It's the stuff that destroys culture, you see. So in that sense, I know this is t- too complicated really, but modern philosophers like Nietzsche and Heidegger and others have hearkened back to Heraclitus, who was a pre-Socratic philosopher, who had this notion of, of uh, the, the logos of violence, polemos is his word for strife or violence, he says, violence has its own logos, and violence both destroys order and creates it. And it destroys it and creates it according to its own logic. So, for example, you could say, if you see everything falling apart, not to worry, because there is in all of that strife and violence a logic all its own. And if you just let it run its course, pretty soon it will produce order. When you first see it, it looks, this is disorder. And then it produces order. And that's about all Heraclitus had to say on the subject. And the modern philosophers go back and say, this is brilliant. They don't quite understand it. And they have every, everybody has a way of explicating it. Well, I think Girard has explicated it uh, supremely. And that is, the, the order is restored when that crazy, mad mob finally polarizes around the victim and moves from the all against all, the war of all against all, what what uh, Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all, becomes the the, the war of all against one. becomes And that is that's the restoration of order. You know, we've been over this a million times. All I'm trying to say is, polemos for Heraclitus was the poison that destroyed everything and the cure that restored order. 